You're listening to All Things Video, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Rex Woodbury, a principal at Index Ventures. Rex, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Yeah, it's great to be here. Excited we get a chance to chat. You know, I wanted to start off our conversation by traveling a bit back in time and uh, getting a sense for how, you know, you you ended up here where you are, right? So you started your career in investment banking at Goldman back in 2015. What initially set you out on that path? Yeah, I think I'd always been interested in, in business. Um, I'd always been interested actually in film and media. And, and I thought going into college that I would probably do something in the film and media world, but then sort of got the business bug and got interested in in how things work behind the scenes, different business models of content and media and the things that move culture. And then somewhere around the road, I um, decided that, you know, or realized technology was the most interesting and impactful thing that, you know, you and I both are sort of um, lucky enough to be, you know, in our careers during this time when technology is improving and changing the world at an incredibly rapid pace. And so I got really interested in tech and then sort of that intersection of like business plus tech plus people and like how those three interact and intersect became really fascinating to me. And that brought me into to venture investing, early stage investing. Very cool. It's funny is some, some parallels. I went to USC for film production and always thought, oh, I'm going to go work in Hollywood. And mm-hmm. I told my friends, like, had I graduated from college 20 years earlier, I probably would have gone and worked at a big entertainment agency or, or you know, done something in, in the business. And yep. uh, something about this convergence of forces and particularly being in LA, it's kind of an interesting time where you have this collision of media and technology. Like I, the gravity was too strong. I couldn't resist jumping into digital media and the creator economy. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. I mean, to your point, I, I started more in the finance or the building the foundation of my career in that way. And it was great sort of like education to business. But then um, since then, I've progressively moved a little earlier into the tech world, um, into the startup world. And just got bitten by the startup bug too. I think like it's just very, very subjectively, in my opinion, the most interesting place to spend time because it's like the forefront of innovation and and cutting edge tech and um, you know helping build and support kind of iconic companies and entrepreneurs and um, that intersection of culture and tech. I think is is really interesting and probably most of the time and thinking that I'm spending at Index is is around that um, place where tech collides with culture. Very cool. So you make your way out to New York, right? You're working in banking, you're doing M&A transactions, working with early stage companies and seeing their growth over time. Uh, all the while, I saw that you launched an organization for LGBTQ membership um, called Worthy. So I was curious, you know, what, yeah. what was the inspiration? And you're doing something that's advisory work, right? In your day job, and you're also doing something kind of entrepreneurial and building yeah. this membership or mentorship organization at the same time. Yeah, so I came out um, as gay at the, end of my sophomore year in college. And so the sort of second half of college was very different from the first half. I would say I was much more, um, and still, you know, coming into my own, but at least much more comfortable with who I was and being more authentic and sort of breaking down that that facade. Um, but, you know, I, I really did have a pretty active closeted period for, for a number of years um, and it was painful and tough. And I didn't have that many role models um, in the queer community and didn't know that many queer people. And so basically the sort of inception of Worthy was thinking about how can you use technology and the internet to to better connect people in the queer community and maybe help um, younger people, especially, but people of all ages and from all around the world um, to better find mentorship and support and guidance. So Worthy is a network of mentors and mentees in the LGBTQ community to to provide that kind of support. Um, yeah, and we have a mobile app now and you know you can sign up as a mentor or mentee and find people. And you know, one of the things that gets me excited about tech is like this way that it connects the world. And we definitely wouldn't have been able to grow worthy without social media, without Instagram in particular. And so, you know, I think there are lots of um negatives to social media and you know, probably it's had a tough couple of years in the press, but I also think, you know, it really can be a powerful way to connect people and you know, for someone who is growing up queer and doesn't have that many people in their community um, to be able to find uh, belonging or find sort of like-minded people around the world can be really life-changing. That's amazing. Yeah, I love the mission behind it. And uh, you're right, right? The technology 
is kind of this amoral force, right? It can be used for mm -hmm. good. And obviously we see all the sensationalized headlines and we live with the, the realities, the negative implications of social media too. But, you know, over the years, seeing things like people's coming out stories on YouTube or encouragement and, uh, you know, some of those positive experiences being shared on social media has been one yep. of the most powerful things about it. So yep. that's and awesome. I think yeah, for me, it was, um, yeah, it was kind of reframing impact. I mean, I think for me in my career, as we talked about, I've always been so interested in pop culture and media and content and storytelling and, um, you know, that sort of side of the world. And, and after Goldman, I was working at TVG and later stage investing. Um, and I worked on the growth fund there and then the social impact fund. And so, you know, it was kind of this comparison of the two of, um, you know, the growth fund had Uber and Airbnb and Spotify and sort of great consumer tech investments, which I'm fascinated by. And then the impact side was a lot more sort of ed tech, um, financial inclusion, digital health. Um, and so for me, it was kind of me being drawn a lot to those internet consumer and media companies, but having to reframe what impact is to be, it's broader than just what we might classify as impact. You know, technology can be incredibly impactful and communications or social media or um, all of these different sort of creator centric companies. Are really impactful because they they're how ideas change they're how um you know people connect around the world and so for me it was kind of feeling the very millennial pull toward having a career built around impact and feeling a need to to have a positive impact on the world but reframing that to be like okay like tech is a horizontal like massive macro shift that's happening around the world as everything digitizes and that's incredibly impactful too yeah, not everything needs to be a B corporation. Not everything needs to exactly. be you know, buy one, donate one. Yeah, those, and those are, are great too. But, but I mean, like, there's other ways completely. to classify impact. Yeah. And I often think of, um, to our point on sort of the queer community or on Worthy, um, there's this app called Blued, which is sort of like um, sort of a gay dating app in China. Um, and uh, the founder in the SEC filing for the IPO like had this very unusual kind of quote that you don't usually find in an SEC filing where he basically was like, look like this app in building this company completely changed my life because I think he was a closeted police officer in China wow. and like had no, didn't know anyone else who was gay. It was like very sort of um, loathing of himself and had this self-hatred and, and with this, uh, the power of the internet, he says, you know, I was basically able to find meaning and belonging beyond uh, my sort of physical location. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's interesting of, if you think of dating apps, it's like no one thinks of that as impact investing or an impactful company, but they really are an amazing way to connect people. And um, you know, I met my partner on Tinder. And so I have a special place in my heart for dating apps. <laughs> and so I think for me, getting excited about how tech connects people and helps people create in new ways, those are probably the things that in my mind are really impactful and meaningful to me. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, had you always considered yourself an entrepreneur when you were growing up? Were there signs of, okay, I want to work with startups or I want to launch my own kind of mentorship organization? What was the inspiration behind that? Um, I always had a lot of different interests. I mean, my dad's a really interesting person. Um, so my dad, uh, my mom passed away when I was one from ovarian cancer. And so it's always been my dad, brother and me. And my dad's like this really incredible kind of Renaissance man where um, he is a doctor by day, but he climbed the seven summits, like climbed all these mountains. Um, but he, and he was like an Emmy nominated like sports broadcaster at one point. And he wrote a book. And when I was young, he took a sabbatical to make a movie. And we like moved to Utah for six months. And like he filmed this um, movie there, which he'll, he might watch this, but has not really stood the test of time. But, you know, I respect his. <laughs> hustle. Um, and I actually do have an IMDb page because I was the baby born at the end of the movie, like the happy ending. So I played the, the little baby. Um, and so that was my claim to fame. And I didn't quite, you know, make it in Hollywood, but he was always not too late. Of, Rex, we haven't it's not too late. You never, never say never. And anyway, you know, everything's about creators and TikTok and YouTube now too. So yep. it's democratized and maybe I'll, I'll have my shot. But mm -hmm. you know, I think he growing up, you know, had so many different interests in so many different areas. And so I always wanted to embody that. And, you know, I think um, in my career, I've definitely, you know, started more on the finance side than did impact investing. And then I actually like worked for Governor Newsom for a little bit and have done like lots of different things and would love to build a career that sort of traverses a lot of different areas. But for now and for the foreseeable future, you know, I'm just really excited about tech startups venture. And that'll probably be the common thread throughout my career, I think. That's awesome.
And, and something like you're describing is becoming more accepted and more commonplace, right? You can express mm -hmm. your interests, you can work on a political mm -hmm. campaign, you can go work at a fund, start a company, right? The, the future yep. of work is a lot more open and fluid and we'll get to that, right? The creative economy and everything else. But uh, yeah, it's awesome to see your exactly. dad embodying that even 30 years perhaps before it became mainstream. Yeah, you're right. I'll have to tell him he was, you're right that he was ahead of his time there. But um, I think, you know, in the past, yeah, I mean, our parents and grandparents, it really was sort of, you have this 30 or 40 year career and you're loyal to an organization or to a job. Um, and I think it's been interesting now because we definitely see the like side hustle economy and people stitch together income in different ways. And there's definitely a piece of that that comes from, you know, like the Great Recession or American jobs and infrastructure being less secure. And so that's out of necessity to have to do that. But there's also a desire to um, have more diversified, you know, investments and interests and sources of income. But I think it's in the future, it might even be more than just uh, you reinvent yourself every, you know, three times in your career. And, and maybe you'll have, you know, Every two years, you're you know going back to school or doing a work corporate training program and sort of reinventing your skill set. And mm -hmm. I really do think the pace of change will be so quick that we'll have to you know have lifelong learning and workforce development, and we'll all have very different um, kind of skills and careers throughout our kind of like forty or fifty year career. I hope so. Right? What a what an exciting and fulfilling career trajectory, not something that's just so linear, but where you get to explore and learn mm -hmm. about many different fields. I think that's exciting. Yeah, there's this crazy stat. Uh, I'm going to totally butcher this, and I don't remember exactly, but it's something like seven out of every 10 people who graduate college in the next 10 years will have a job that today doesn't exist or something like that. You know, it's one of those kind of mind-blowing stats where you're like, wow, like jobs are being created that, you know, maybe in the future, it'll be like you're a digital architect for like a digital world or you're a fashion designer in the metaverse or, um, you know, an AI, you know, specialist in some way that hasn't um, evolved yet. But it's really interesting to think about, you know, what are the jobs of the future? And yeah. of course, there will be, you know, teachers and nurses and other jobs that we have today, but a lot of them haven't been invented yet. For sure. So picking up on your story, right, you do the impact investing, you move from York to the Bay Area. How mm -hmm. was that, you know, change moving cross country and kind of entering into uh, the next chapter? of your Yeah, I think it was, I feel lucky to move to the Bay. So I've been here five years or so. Um, and I think there was a different ethos coming out here of a spirit of entrepreneurship and the idea that I think on the East Coast, um, and I, I do love New York and um, the East Coast, but I think I had definitely, and maybe this was because I was earlier in my career, but viewed careers as a more kind of linear progression. Um, and so, you know, there are different steps you take and a ladder you climb. And I think coming out to San Francisco, I definitely reframed that as sort of a career is something you build for yourself. And, and I also think this is um, how Gen Zs are starting to think about work and, and how younger people approach their jobs. But just this idea that, you know, you can um, there's something in the air or in the water here in, in the Bay, which is a little more kind of scrappy and entrepreneurial and exciting. Um, and so I think I became very kind of quickly addicted to the startup community and this idea of, you know, building really world changing companies. Um, and I love meeting with entrepreneurs and spending time with them and, you know, the people who are kind of defining the future of tomorrow. Yeah. It's funny, I, um, last year, I guess, right before the pandemic struck, I uh, won tickets to go see Hamilton in San Francisco, right? It was, mm -hmm. I won the lottery to get great tickets and uh, was, was uh, it was before it opened, it was, it was supposed to open here in LA. So I got a friend and said, okay, let's, let's make the drive up to San Francisco to see the show. And I remember remarking to him when we got into San Francisco, that all of the billboards were for startups, right? And like mm -hmm. driving around LA, every billboard you see is for your consideration, right? Like yeah, yep. Netflix or the latest thing on Amazon Prime. And it's it just that tonally set the, off the difference between San Francisco and LA is like every third person you meet here works in entertainment, whether that's traditional or all these new media forms that you see today. And then yep. just, the culture is so stark. It feels like, I felt like I was entering the set of Silicon Valley when you drive in, all you see are the billboards. Yeah, I know. And sometimes <laughs> we are a parody of ourselves. And I do think with COVID, you know, the world will be um, more open up and digital and there will be entrepreneurs everywhere. And, and I think that's a good thing for the quality of sort of venture funding and getting off the ground. And you can actually build a business from anywhere, but you're absolutely right that I actually think of Hamilton a lot with like the phrase young, scrappy and hungry. And I think that sort of embodies 
I, I, when I say San Francisco or Silicon Valley or like um, the startup Bay Area scene, I, I view that much more as sort of like um, a metaphor, like abstraction now than like the actual physical place. I think it's more like a worldview or like set of ideas that yeah. has moved well beyond, you know, these sort of like 30 square miles now and has sort of um, hopefully, you know, kind of seeped into different entrepreneurial enclaves around the country and also around yeah. the world. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of your focuses as an investor, right? You've got an yeah. investing thesis around the creator economy. Mm -hmm. Spend a lot of your time there. For those who aren't familiar, real quick, what is the creator economy and why is it important? Yeah, I would say I, I define creator economy broadly. So I think um, it's really people who are finding work through their individualized talents and knowledge. Um, and so I think of it as sort of a natural progression of the gig economy. And so the gig economy was like, you know, Uber and, you know, Instacart or DoorDash, you know, they're mostly standardized skills where you're earning a living by driving or food delivery. Um, and I think the creator economy also called sometimes the passion economy, hustle economy. I think it's this idea that we all can sort of take our unique skill sets and, um, you know, extend them to, to earn income. And so I think, uh, you know, we saw that originally on, you know, creator platforms like YouTube. Um, so like YouTubers, you know, back in like early, like 2010s, um, you know, they started their partner program and, and used the word creator. And so people were making a living there. And now I think it's, it's broader. It could be someone who's like a teacher making a living on OutSchool. It could be a reseller making a living on Pop Shop. Um, you know, there are lots of different ways that you can sort of use your own savvy and hustle to dictate your own fortunes. Yeah. And you've spent some time as a creator, right? So I want to talk about your, your newsletter, Digital Native, but I'm also curious, you've built up a big following on social media. So tell us about your experience and why you have decided to, you know, how yeah. you participated in the creator economy. Yeah, I mean, I've met some great people through social media. And again, you know, going back to Worthy, you know, was able to grow that mainly through Instagram. So I've always loved, you know, social because it's this way to communicate ideas and connect with people who you would probably never have the chance to meet. Um, I always say like, I was a little more of like the influencer side than the creator side back in the day. It was like peak Instagram. Um, I don't know if I could have called myself a creator on Instagram at least, but, um, you know, started building a following there and, and had this great community and um, then kind of, you know, became a little more creative and dabbled in TikTok. And then to your point, you know, started writing a sub stack and doing more long form writing and then Twitter and other places like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think what it comes down to is, you know, getting to connect with new people and express my ideas and creativity and individuality in new ways. And so some sometimes that's visually through Instagram. Sometimes it's, you know, through videos on TikTok. And sometimes it's through Wednesday pieces on Digital Native on my blog. Um, but it's pretty fun that, you know, someone can sort of like me can just, you know, write and create and express myself. And I don't really earn that much income anymore from it. But I used to make money through Instagram doing that um, and support myself for a while. And so, you know, it is pretty interesting how um, I have a little bit of empathy now and not nearly as creative as most of the people that I get to meet and work with. Um, but there is this incredible sort of breath on, of talent out in the world. And it's fun to see that unleashed. Yeah. And, and I feel like there's a point in which, you know, someone in your position almost needs to do that, right? Needs to um, express yourself creatively. And what I mean by that is we see this trend of venture capital moving towards, um, you know, hiring journalists and mm -hmm. telling the story of the companies they invest in and their thesis and being very open and transparent about, you know, the types of bets that they're making um, and, you know, why they backed certain certain visions. Um, I think the same is true kind of on the other side of the table. So like my day job running a mm -hmm. startup, right? Influence marketing software. Um, I, I struggled to accept the term creator. I still kind of have issue, I, like, I don't know that I would necessarily define myself that way. And yet it's an integral part of what I do, right? So I mm -hmm. the podcast, as I was telling you before we started recording, for fun, right? I enjoy doing it. And it's a great way for me to meet people and learn about our space. But there's also, I, I write daily on LinkedIn. And mm -hmm. uh, I find that part of it has forced me to a few things, right? Number one, um, be more current about what's happening in our ecosystem and be forced to codify my thoughts and express them publicly mm -hmm. and have debates and strengthen my thoughts or, or learn and change mm -hmm. on certain things. Um, and then it's also very fulfilling to kind of, mm -hmm. I don't know, this is the nerdy piece is like, 
being academic about the evolution of digital media, right? Or, or getting yeah. about the creator economy and where it's going. Like I can talk all day, yeah. I love it. But I feel like it's increasingly important to be the leader of a business or an investor to not just keep that information to yourself, but to find ways mm-hmm. to share it now it's becoming more paramount. Yeah. Well, I think distribution is open and democratized and and that's the key now of, I think the arc of the internet is this like arc of removing gatekeepers. And so, you know, we still see a lot of sort of legacy media with a lot of gatekeepers and like record labels are a great example now where I don't think there's any world in which from first principles, it makes sense for, um, you know, a record label to own an artist's work into perpetuity. And we're seeing, you know, Taylor Swift kind of re-record to own her masters and uh, sort of shift away from that. Um, but if you think of, you know, there's this, I'm going to put Barry Diller's, you know, on, in the spotlight here, which I hate to do because I really respect Barry Diller, who was the, you know, um, he was CEO of both Paramount and yeah. Fox at times and then started IAC and um, Expedia and many businesses. And I think he's brilliant, but he has this quote that has not aged well from like 2006. And it was actually, I think it came out like um, three months before YouTube was started. But he said something like, there's not that much talent in the world. Like there's not that much creativity. Like there are only a few people who are really good at this stuff and they're not going to be displaced by the 1800 people who are in their closets and can't get out. Um, and it has not aged well because it turns out there's a ton of creativity and talent in the world. Um, and it was really the gatekeepers who were restraining it. You know, it's the executives in LA and New York and these skyscrapers who are making decisions and choosing who can define and move culture. And and now, you know, with first with Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and social, but now even more with like TikTok's algorithmic feed, like truly anyone can have distribution if the quality of content is high enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's incredible. And so to your point of, I do think, you know, as an entrepreneur or venture capitalist or investor and politician, you know, distribution is important because anyone can sort of build a community and audience and own that distribution now. Um, and really that's the power to move ideas and change culture. Yeah. And what I've observed is that there's a trend toward every brand needs to be a media company to some extent. You mm-hmm. have to produce content you have to connect with your audience. And rather than us thinking about institutions, like we would have, you know, two or three generations mm-hmm. ago, and, and my, my grandfather worked for IBM for 30 years, right? My dad worked in oil and gas for Shell Oil and Manhattan. And it's like, you know, you think about the institution. Mm-hmm. Now, there were maybe some exceptions to that where you had like the all-star CEO, like a Jack Welsh and GE back in the day. Um, but now we don't talk about Amazon. We talk about Jeff Bezos, even though, you know, he's uh, going to be the chairman, not the CEO anymore. We, we talk about yep. Elon Musk and all of his ventures. It's not about you know, Tesla necessarily. And I think that part of that is just the notion of celebrity. And we've now prioritized some of these mega successful, the Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musks of the mm-hmm. world over musicians and actors. Um, but I also think that the future of companies and leadership are going to lead more publicly, right? Like Jack Conti is a great example of Patreon. He's very open about the business and what they think about and what they're doing, right? And he acts as a creator, right? He publishes YouTube videos and he writes. Yeah, he's an incredible creator yeah. and musician. Um, yeah. And so, well, I mean, I think you get at a bigger piece, which is this shift from institutions to people. And so people are the new corporations in many ways. And so if you think of where trust has gone in America over the last like 100 years, like it started with institutions like government. And, you know, maybe this was like in the FDR, like New Deal era, where people put a lot of trust in different government programs. Then it shifted in maybe like the 60s, 70s, 80s to like corporations and, you know, GE and Jack Welch and the people you mentioned. And now I think it's really people, it's creators, it's like the long tail of individuals. And I think it's a fascinating study of why that happened. I think some of it is the financial crisis and young people have this like inherent skepticism and distrust of um, institutions, which I think is partly due to like unprecedented income inequality and like Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street Mm -hmm. and um, a lot of sort of wealth concentrated at the top. Um, But I think, you know, instead of yeah, what is Tesla other than like a social token for Elon Musk? Um, but also, you know, a lot of people are just looking to trust in other people. Like maybe they resonate more with Charlie D'Amelio or like um, one of the new kind of creators coming up than they do with a brand. Um, and so I think it is a really interesting point of, you know, it's going to be the long tail of people who are choosing to support and invest in other people versus companies. Yeah, and on the political spectrum, that's uh, evidenced itself as this massive populist swell, 
which on one extreme gave us Donald Trump, but on another extreme also led to the rise of like Bernie Sanders, right? Or AOC, right? Like For sure. idea of, okay, these are people mm -hmm. who are connecting very closely to their constituents, oftentimes through social media, which is amazing and powerful, but it's, um, you're right, it's, it's moving us away from this focus on institutions yep. and more on same, their individual brand. Yeah, and like same forces as GameStop and Dogecoin and lots of these fascinating things. And I think a lot of NFT mania, I mean, all probably very important shifts of like, everyone should be an investor through like something like Robinhood. Like I think, you know, crypto has an incredible amount of power to reorient the sort of creative economy. Um, but I think... Also, yeah, I mean, a piece of it is you mentioned earlier, like feeling like you maybe shouldn't um, be a creator or like call yourself that. And I think something I've struggled with too, of like, I was talking with a friend recently where she was like, oh, like I wanted to tip you and like support you for your newsletter, which is free. And I was like, oh, like, that's so weird. Like, and she was like, well, you put out all this work. Like, is there a way I could support you? Like I got a lot of value from it. And I thought that was so interesting to me because um, I do think like a lot of us who came of age in like 2010s or like 2000s internet, just assume our work and content is free. Um, and we're very used to like these web two ideas of, of free ad supported content um, and creators not getting paid. And I think there's this shift in mindset of like, I wanna support art and it's for you and me, it's like maybe a shift of like, okay, like I worked really hard on this. Like I do deserve like, income for it, which feels off sometimes because it's right. like, you know, you're not used to as a creator charging for stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's going to be a massive shift to, you know, teachers and, um, you know, live streamers and TikTokers, YouTubers, and anyone online with a presence who puts a lot of work into it will feel better about, you know, either charging a subscription or micropayments or stuff like that. And there's going to be this shift from that ad supported world to a commerce driven one. For sure. And we already see that coming, right? I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today without the web 2.0 model and the aggregators who brought us, okay, YouTube wouldn't exist without advertising, right? Like an ad yep. model mm -hmm. to make this content available. But now we're entering into the web 3.0 world, which yep. is more open, more decentralized, less focused on institutions, right? So all of these themes that we're talking about from politics to business are now converging in, in the future of the internet, right? Like, yep. So I'll set that idea aside because I want to, while we're also perhaps on the precipice of entering into this really exciting web 3.0 era and you've got, you know, Internet of Things and everything else, there's also this really scary reaction to it, which is we're on, on the brink of living in more closed societies, right? China shutting down and having its own Internet, Iran, um, North Korea, India, Pakistan wanting to do the same things. Is there a risk that while much of the world looks to embrace this more open decentralized model that countries um, and the political regulation of big tech interferes with that and creates more disparate, isolated, closed systems? Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think there might be a China dominated and controlled internet and then, you know, a US or Western kind of dominated and controlled internet. Um, and I think it, It'll be interesting, especially as we move toward decentralization, how that changes um, and how you get to the decentralization point too. of like, you know, I always think of like Ready Player One, um, which is one of my favorite books and movies with like the Oasis um, and the company that owns it. Like, who is that for us? Like, who's the big bad corporation? Is it like Facebook or Google or Apple with recent, you know, 30% cut on, on the app store? Like, who are the centralized players who we are fighting to decentralize away from? And how does that start? Um, I think Tim Sweetie at Epic has done an amazing job and probably doesn't get enough credit for pushing this conversation. But, you know, how do we move from this web two centralized world into a web three decentralized world? Yeah, it's funny. I did a study I, that I published on LinkedIn recently, which was basically snapshotting the top mm -hmm. the Fortune 10 companies of the past 50 years. And, um, you know, you, you think back on it and in the 80s and the 90s, it's big tobacco, it's oil companies, right? It's um, uh, Enron was in, uh, obviously like in the Fortune 10 for a while. And then you look at the changes and obviously you see the rise of Walmart and Amazon. So e-commerce and retail. Uh, and then more recently you see the rise of healthcare, right? And obviously the, the yep. Fortune 10 is based on revenue rather than market cap. So there's some, you know, some difference. Yep. But it's what, one of the things that occurred to me was how much we villainize these companies that are so successful, right? It's like, you know, we rail against Amazon as much as I'm going to, it's the first place I go to shop and I'm happy to get my products a day or two later. You know, everyone's upset that 
Amazon's mm-hmm. trying to block um, unionization and that they have so much power and they're growing so quickly. So there's there's kind of um, uh, this, this these competing forces of we love these companies, but we also love to hate these companies. Do you observe that as well? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how um, like these companies have certainly like been uh, maybe it's controversial to say like a net positive. Like I think, you know, the pandemic would have been a lot harder without the Internet, period. Without Amazon, it would have been really challenging. Um, I think Amazon you know, was probably an unsung hero during the pandemic for many reasons. And yeah. of course, they have their problems, too. Um, but I think, you know, I certainly respect the innovation and what these companies have pushed us toward. Um, I do think like we can learn from this era of big tech and, you know, maybe the next generation can rebuild with um, in mind some of the the shortcomings of this era. Like, I think there is certainly a risk that we'll look back at social media, similar to how you mentioned big tobacco. Like, I think, you know, we could easily see Facebook um, in that same way from like a gamified sort of mental health status driven like button centric mold. Um, And so what are the ways, you know, we can rethink social media to be more um, built around belonging and community and authenticity and in a way from sort of the initial social media 1.0 era. And then similar with commerce too, like, you know, there's a new generation of, you know, fair is my partner works at fair. And so I have to start up, I think of a lot or Shopify or these others that are taking learnings from Amazon and, you know, still taking the power of tech, but enabling, um, you know, new ways of, of entrepreneurship or small businesses and that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk more about uh, how social media is evolving because I find this particularly mm-hmm. fascinating. Obviously, Facebook and Instagram recently decided, mm-hmm. after testing and lots of internal debates, uh, to make it optional to hide public like yeah. um, but uh, but not making it mandatory. Um, so that's one step potentially maybe in the right direction. Some others mm-hmm. say, okay, well, they're still beholden to this influencer economy and the the, you know, the, the attention economy that occurs on these platforms. At the mm-hmm. same time, we have this whole new generation of uh, social media platforms. You wrote about several in this week's newsletter, like Be Real, Dispo, but you also have things like Discord, OnlyFans, right? Where it's about, it's not a broadcast mechanism. I don't need to send my content out to everyone in the world. It's about engaging with community and about expressing different elements of your identity in different places online. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, I think to your last point there, like I had this kind of framework that I was working with that I was, as I was trying to make sense of this in my head um, of like, if you think of social like concentric rings, like concentric circles, um, you know, in the middle, you've got sort of like one-to-one small group connections. Um, And then, you know, you've got your like friends and acquaintances moving out. And then you've got sort of like the whole world of strangers here. And I was thinking, you know, I do think the world is going toward more of like ring one and then ring four and like skipping rings two and three. Um, So what I mean by that is like, we're seeing a surge of one-to-one messaging and like small group messaging. Um, and so Signal, Telegram, WhatsApp, iMessage, yeah. all of those places of like, you know, huge boom and like, you know, I'm friends with James, I wanna connect with you or like, I want my family group chat here. Mm-hmm. Um, or I think like 90% of Discord's like 15 million servers are 15 or fewer people. Wow. And so these like small groups. Um, and so that's one piece of it. And then, you know, I think we're moving away from the middle ones, which are more like Instagram and Facebook, which are, you know, you're kind of like loose acquaintances where in the past it's like, oh, like, you know, my offline friends or like college friends were like my proxy for like online connections. Um, but those are the ones where I feel like social media is most performative and status driven. Mm -hmm. And then the outer band is like, maybe like a AI driven connections with like strangers and people around the world. Um, and so that's like TikTok and like connecting with people through TikTok or maybe even like Clubhouse or how does like of the, you know, seven, eight, nine billion people in the world, like who are the three people that like I'm going to most enjoy this content from right now? And AI can tell us that. Yeah. And so I think we're going to see a lot more sort of one-to-one small group messaging and more like AI driven social connections. And those in-betweens, I think will fall away a little bit. I mean, we'll still have places to keep up with friends, of course, but I think, um, you know, as the the true potential of the creative output of the world is unlocked through places like TikTok and, and through AI, we'll discover more people. Yeah, I love that model. And maybe at some point you should make like uh, an infographic or something about it because I think that's really mm-hmm. smart. Yeah, but um, you mentioned Clubhouse. And so as you were explaining this, I was having this thought of why when I sign into Clubhouse or any of these other audio experiences, which is one of the mm-hmm. big battlegrounds of social tech at the moment, why don't they just drop me into a room they think I would like 
in the same mm-hmm. way that TikTok would. And then I could just swipe if I'm not into yeah. that and I kind of jump yeah. into the next discussion. Any yeah. thoughts on well, you know, that? I think that, that could easily be the future. Um, I think that could easily come. I think the problem specifically there is just like real-time audio is so hard. Um, and so it's like, when it's real time, like how do you know what's happening and what James is going to like and, and you know, keep that sort of engaging in the moment and predictive. Um, and so that's probably one of the main challenges. But, you know, I think in the future, it'll probably happen. I mean, early iteration was like my news feed shows me the content on Instagram that it knows I'll engage with and the friends who I like the most of their photos will come up earlier and soon it'll be more immersive like that. Um, or like I'll join discord and like the six servers that it says I need to know and belong to, or like the six communities are there. Um, but I don't know. I mean, recently, like I was, I kept saying like, you know, if 2010s were the decade of status online, like status and social media, then like the 2020s are the decade of belonging. And what I meant by that is like this Gen Z driven shift away from like performing, like I was in like the 2010s Instagram, like many of the people my age grew up with Instagram in this like very curated, polished, edited way. Um, it's going to move to more authentic content. And I've called that like the Kylie Jenner to like Charlie D'Amelio shift of the last years. Um, but then one founder I was talking to said, no, like status is always key to like social media. It's like human nature, but it's going to be status within a community. And I thought that was interesting. So like, instead of, um, you know, me caring that much, what all my Instagram followers think it's like me caring what like my fellow Billie Eilish stands in my discord server think, or like the other people in this subreddit that I'm part of. And so I think that's true too, of like, as people find niche communities that they feel more a part of and feel belonging with, how do they, you know, feel like they matter and belong and get validation from each other in that community? Yeah. Awesome. Are there any companies you're following that you're excited about how they embrace or promote community? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think um, a couple like the ones that you mentioned earlier that I wrote about this week, I think of uh, the new kind of photo sharing, better photo sharing apps like um, Paparazzi, Be Real and Dispo are all really interesting. Um, I do think Instagram is vulnerable from it's a very, well, A, it's very crowded now. It sort of was born with like simplicity as its core value and it's crowded, but it also hasn't really been able to shake that stigma of performance. Um, and so I think some of like the thoughtful product decisions that like paparazzi's made of like no selfies and no front facing camera or be real, which constrains you to take a photo within two minutes and um, be very authentic and in the moment. All of those are sort of very clever and interesting product decisions that I think are much more organically born from this authentic ethos. Um, and so I think all of those are interesting and I'm you know, excited to follow them. And, and hopefully my hope is that they you know, shift kind of what so- social media has been over the last 10 years and make it a little more spontaneous, serendipitous, authentic. Yeah. I'm thinking as you're talking about that, that uh, although Instagram seems to be losing the cool factor, much in the same mm-hmm. way that Facebook for most people, our generation, particularly younger than us, uh, yep. we thought dead spending time on Facebook, right? But you have all these older audiences. So when you when you go back and you look at MAUs, like Facebook has 2.85 billion monthly active users, like a third of the internet or more are on Facebook yep. every month. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And Instagram is in third position after YouTube with 1.25 right? billion, yep. crazy amounts. Yep. And so even though I agree, Instagram's bloated, it's trying to be TikTok with reels. It's trying to do stories to compete against Snapchat and everybody else now. It's, it's trying to do IGTV to compete against YouTube. It's like, well, if you are Facebook, do you recognize that, okay, in the adoption curve, we are now in the mature stage and we're focused on international, we're focused on older audiences, we're going to milk this thing for all it's worth? Um, or do you try and skate where the puck's going to be and compete against the reels and the dispo. It just feels like this is classic innovators dilemma. Like Instagram is on its path. It's going to try to be everything mm-hmm. to everyone. And th- that's why there is space created for all of these yep. new startups. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think to answer that, I think what Facebook's been doing is is skating to the puck and trying to follow the lead. I mean, I think that's what reels is. Um, you know, I think beyond that, like earlier, that's what stories was. It was a reaction to Snapchat. Um, you know, stories was much more successful than, than reels was. And, you know, I think TikTok has shown that innovation and social is certainly not dead and it just takes a new kind of, um, you know, product design or thoughtfulness, um, like the immersive AI driven feed was, was the key innovation there as well as easier to use content creation tools. Um, 
but I think, you know, Facebook's trying to replicate all of that. And, you know, I think Facebook would look a lot different today if they didn't successfully buy Instagram. I think they would look, you know, a lot weaker um, and WhatsApp as well. But, um, you know, the big blue app has not been doing great. And I think they, they know that they need to have, you know, either innovations that they put in Instagram, like they put reels in Instagram because it's, it's the place where the sort of the most engaged and younger audience is. Um, but I think they'll continue to probably add products um, like they're adding shop or they're adding other things. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of it, but also Mark Zuckerberg has staked a lot of the company's future on VR, AR, um, you know, VR, especially with Oculus, I think like a third of Facebook employees work in virtual reality. Um, I think that's right. Could be wrong. But I remember it's a huge number. Um, and I think, you know, he clearly sees that as sort of the next iteration of, you know, the next major platform. And um, I think, you know, is positioning the company for that, too. And increasingly, Snap looks like an AR company, right? With especially oh, yeah. Snap is, spectacles for. Snap is incredibly innovative and underrated. I mean, they have 500 million, you know, users now and, um, you know, very engaged and very young too. I mean, Evan Spiegel's like whole thing has been, you know, let me keep young people as they get older and then keep attracting the youngest people and not really worry about the older people. Um, and I think it's working really well. And yeah, I mean, Snap is a messaging company, like a camera-based messaging company, yep. but it's also, um, you know, Spotlight, which is like the TikTok competitor there has been really successful. And I think, uh, you know, Snap is low-key positioned for like this AR future um, and probably is the place that most people engage with AR. Yeah, I think you're right. Like if anyone has uh, the best shot at successfully bridging the gap into social and the metaverse, it's Snap, right? Mm -hmm. They're just super well positioned for that. But yeah, now or, or I would counter like maybe Roblox or something. But yes, oh, totally. um, from yeah, Roblox, part. Epic Games, yeah. right? All of these that are already playing in that space. Um, so we, we touched on one of the current battlegrounds for social media, which is audio and live audio in particular, but the other is obviously short form looping video, oftentimes with this kind of algorithmic discovery event. So TikTok mm -hmm. as a pioneer, YouTube shorts, Instagram reels, playing catch up, spotlighting the mix. Uh, what is your prediction for the future of the short form video space? Oh, I mean, I am a huge bull for TikTok and ByteDance. I mean, if you look at Douyin, which is TikTok in China, um, it is, I think, time spent per day is something like 100 minutes, 96 minutes or something. Um, so like almost an hour and 40 minutes per day spent. Yeah, I think in the US, it's probably like 55 minutes or something. Um, and Instagram's around 50 minutes as well. So, I mean, those are huge numbers. And I spend a lot of time in TikTok. Um, and I think it's just a really creative place. I mean, it's set, it's set up for a lot of these trends we've talked about of like, you know, discovering the best content, um, you know, it removes the friction to find content, um, you know, the algorithmic feed. It also, I think a lot of people talk about the innovations of the product from a consumption standpoint, um, from the immersive sort of feed, but it also has a lot of innovations from creation. Um, and importantly, like both tech and cultural. And so what I mean by that is, you know, YouTube is kind of cumbersome to create videos. Um, you know, it, it does take some knowledge of editing software and stuff like that. And that's why I think something like one in a thousand people on YouTube also post to YouTube. And that's much more common on TikTok. Um, you know, I saw one number that 83% of people on TikTok also post, which seems a little high to me, but, uh, okay. you know, I, I, so I'm not sure um, if that's right, but it's certainly more. Um, and that partly comes from like, all you really need is the TikTok app on your smartphone. Um, but then also they have these cultural pieces that make content creation so easy, which is, um, you know, if I go to YouTube and I go to make a video, it's like, okay, like, what am I going to make a video about? Like, there's this sort of um, stress that comes to me and this like friction to, to get started. Um, and on TikTok, you know, they've got challenges and like, those are usually built on sounds. So like, I know what to do. And I can also uh, duet someone, I can stitch with someone. There are all of these features that are built around making it easy from a cultural perspective to just get started as a creator. And so I think that's really groundbreaking and that um, is well set up for the future of creation. Yeah, TikTok nailed two things. One is the creator experience, so duets, stitch, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, um, but also the, uh, the user experience, right? I don't have to go in yep. and search, that's all available to you, but of course the algorithmic discovery is just effortless. And yep. um, the, the thing that's so fascinating is you think back to the early days of YouTube, right? And, and it used to have a bad reputation. It was like pirated movies and films, it yep. was cat videos, um, right? And then there was kind of a, the next wave was like, okay, well, there's music content in here and gaming, but there wasn't, you know, the, the breadth of content you can discover on YouTube today, which is really amazing. TikTok had kind of a similar story 
where it's like, okay. Lip sync. Yeah. yeah Everyone's like a lip sync app. Yeah. yeah. And Twitch kind of facing the Sigma votes, just gaming. Right. But I think yeah. that's, you find your point where you can, you, you the Trojan horse where you get in and then you expand. Yeah. And TikTok has done a really good job of in a short time, changing the brands and opening up the content experience. For sure. I mean, I always say TikToks, I mean, it goes back to like the Chris Dixon line of like every, the next big thing starts out looking like a toy. Exactly. I mean, like my dad was horrified when I was on YouTube the first time in like 2007 or something. Um, I think like the first ever YouTube video I watched was Charlie the Unicorn, which was, uh, you know, an OG YouTube video, but he was like, what is this? Like, this is not like a, you know, this is a sketchy like app to like see videos and stuff. Um, and so I think, you know, same with it being like silly cat videos and then TikTok being lip sync videos, you know, it's easily dismissed, but, um, you know, soon I think, you know, in five years, every corporation will have a TikTok, you know, every parent will have a TikTok. I think it's just the shift that we've seen of social and, and content platforms. Um, but to your point, I think, yeah, I mean, they're well positioned for it. And um, I always say YouTube and TikTok are like the most underrated education companies in the world too. Sure. Um, I mean, I learned so much more on TikTok than uh, from most other places. And there's a pretty robust, um, you know, streak to, to educational content, to hustle culture, um, to scrappiness, to entrepreneurship, all of that on TikTok. The hashtag learn on TikTok is one of the most popular, yeah, the hashtag mm -hmm. discovered for sure. Yeah, exactly. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the creator economy, what would they be? Hmm. Hmm. Probably one would be like a more horizontal one of business model innovation. And so I think just like this shift away from advertising um, and to, to commerce broadly defined. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, advertising is about like an $800 billion market in the world. I think that's about right. About half of it is digital already. So it's about 50% penetrated from a digital perspective. Um, commerce is about a $20 trillion market and yeah. probably like 10% penetrated. And so I think we're going to see the shift from, you know, we're seeing this already. We were talking about tipping, um, or, you know, subscription, or maybe it's like on clubhouse already, you can tip, but you're going to maybe go to like ticketed events and stuff. Um, or, you know, only fans with like micro payments, like micro transactions to creators to like unlock a DM. And so I think a lot of it's going to move to, to that kind of commerce. Um, I think, you know, part of that will be a lot of gaming like innovations. So I always say like gaming is a good way to sort of see the future of the internet. Um, and I think a lot of the sort of virtual currencies that are these robust digital economies in gaming will come to, to the rest of the internet. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, Fortnite with V-Bucks and Roblox with uh, Robux and Minecraft with Minecoin, like all of these kind of robust digital economies a lot more apps and, and sites and places will have their own kind of native in-app and in-game currencies and we'll, we'll trade with that. So those are two of them, maybe like one and a half. Um, but I think, you know, crypto has a lot of elements to that too and, and NFTs as well. Um, and then other things I'm excited about. I mean, I think just again, like this disaggregation of work um, and this like intersection of the creator economy is really like a segment of future of work um, in this huge trend that we've talked about away from institutions to people. And so what are the infrastructure plays that need to happen there um, to build that new economy? So if you think of like all of the infrastructure that's been built in America over the last hundred years for small businesses or business creation, like all of that needs to be replicated for, for creators who are the new small businesses or just big businesses or like the new startups and entrepreneurs. Um, and so is that a, you know, financial solution, a banking solution? Is it healthcare? Is it benefits? Like what are the ways that this ecosystem needs to survive and be built up so that it can thrive? Um, I think all of those are fascinating. Yeah. There's a lot of activity in the creator fintech space right now. Obviously you guys mm -hmm. invested in, in juice and uh, love what Ezra yep. that's over there. Mm -hmm. There's uh, the traditional systems don't know how to treat a creator, right? I don't know how to do mm -hmm. a car loan or a mortgage for a creator, right? How do you classify their income? How do you get help? Yep. With the nature of we're changing so much and more people embracing this creator identity or exactly. at least what they do, it's your side hustle in addition to your day job. We need yep. institutions and, and infrastructure to be able to support that. Yep, exactly. I mean, I think that whole economy needs to be built out and um, you know, I think Mr. Beast is famous for saying, like, I think he went to get a loan or something and brought, and I know Jack Conti at Patreon did something similar where I think he printed out his like YouTube, um, ad revenue or something, his pay stubs or something to try to get like a mortgage. And 
you know, everyone's the bank's like, what? Like, what is this? What is this? And so yeah. Everything needs to sort of be brought into the 21st century. And um, I think, you know, this kind of robust commerce driven digital economy is really fascinating. Um, and like part of it's the road to the metaverse, like all of these things intersect that we've talked about of like social creator economy, you know, crypto elements to it, gaming, like a lot of them have these same threads of, you know, enabling entrepreneurship in new ways, interesting new business models, um, and more people kind of transacting and capturing value and delivering value online. Yeah. So one of my favorite questions to ask everyone who comes on the show, and you're going to have a very unique perspective on this, okay. is if you were setting out to start a business in the creator economy today, what would you do? Where's the white space? What would you go tackle? Oh, man. It's um, a great question. Um, I don't know if I have a great answer. Otherwise, I would have told one of like uh, my my friends who is an aspiring entrepreneur. But I think probably, you know, a couple of things we've talked about. I think um, from a really consumer facing perspective, I think, you know, social, there are a lot of opportunities and like more authentic and unique interactions with people through like a paparazzi or dispo or be real. Mm -hmm. um, but then I also think I'd probably do something, one of these like infrastructure pick and shovel ideas of like, this economy is clearly thriving. It's, I think, you know, going to be an enormous economy over the next kind of 30 or 50 years. Um, but so much of like the American social safety net is tied up in work and institutions and corporations. Um, and so how do we build that for this new economy and this new future? Um, so I think probably something around that. Like, I'm not sure whether it would be, you know, one of these fintech solutions, or maybe it is um, adapting healthcare or benefits um, or doing something for mental health of creators. Because if you're a creator, like you, you know, you're used to getting like maybe paid time off at a job or like taking vacation, but like you can't really do that as a creator. And so for a week, exactly. And people forget about you. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, solving some of those um, creator pain points, I think just like talking to creators and hearing the pain points, hearing what it's like to, to be a full-time creator and earn a living this way. And then, you know, always starting with like the authentic pain points that either you've experienced or that you've, you've seen firsthand. Cool. Awesome. Rex, where can people find out more about you and about the work that you do at Index Ventures and some of the stuff that you're publishing? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at Rex underscore Woodbury. Um, and then I write every week at digitalnative.substack. Um, and mostly, mostly writing about many of these things that we've talked about. But yeah, feel free to, to DM me on Twitter and um, you know, looking forward to meeting people. Awesome. Well, Rex, this has been so much fun. I could uh, geek out with you all day about the future of the creator economy, but thank you for- We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, of yeah. course. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.